Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter 7 The Iron Circlet, Part 2. I now hoped that I had escaped her altogether. I took a carriage and drove to the hotel at Freshwater, where I intended staying until Lockhart communicated with me. I knew the place well, having spent many a summer holiday there in my young days. The hotel was nearly empty, the season not having yet begun, and I found myself the only occupant of the coffee-room. I ordered a hasty meal and was just beginning to eat when a lady dressed in black entered the room and sat down at a distant table. A waiter came up and asked if she wanted anything. She ordered a cup of coffee, which was presently brought to her. I do not think she touched it. I saw her slowly stirring it with her teaspoon. She raised her eyes and encountered mine. She was Miss Ward. I perceived she had followed me. My dinner became instantly distasteful. I took up a paper and pretended to read. In a few moments a waiter brought me a note. I tore it open. It ran as follows. I am staying here at a big house called the Towers, where the work is to be done. Come up path by cliff toward the golf links. We'll meet you there. We can talk alone and arrange our plans. This is a matter of life and death. I thrust the note into my coat pocket, and raising my eyes, saw that Miss Ward had left her seat and come up to my table. "'You are to meet Mr. Lockhart on the path by the cliff toward the golf links?' she said in an interrogative voice. I made no reply. "'If you go, I shall go also,' she continued. "'By so doing, I put myself into the most deadly peril. Will not the thought of my danger influence you?' "'It is not necessary for you to go. It is for me.' I replied. Miss Ward, I cannot understand your motive, nor why you persist in harassing me as you are doing, but I can only act on my own judgment, and as I think best. Leave me now to my fate, whatever it is. I have my work to do, and must do it. Then it will be as I said, she answered. You are imperiling your life and mine, but I have spoken. I can add no more. She left the room, closing the door after her. Making a great effort, I tried to banish her words and her strange persistency from my mind. I put on my hat and started off. I went down the lawn, crossed the little front parade, and began to ascend the pathway. I walked on for about half a mile, along the edge of the cliff, looking to right and left for Lockhart. My mind was torn with conflicting thoughts. Should I tell Lockhart about Miss Ward, or should I forbear? Was there by any possibility some truth in the wild words of this girl, who had followed me down to this lonely place on a quest of such evident peril? I had always prided myself on reading character well, and the straight glance of those dark and troubled eyes added now to my perplexity. She looked like one who was speaking the truth. Still, to believe her was impossible, for to believe her was to doubt Lockhart. I walked on, wondering that he had not yet put in an appearance. I was now close to the golf links. Suddenly I heard to my right, and not a long way off, the sharp cry of a woman. It came on the night breeze, once, twice, then there was no further sound. I rushed in the direction from which the cry had come, and the next moment stumbled up against Lockhart. He spoke in an eager voice, but there was a tremble in it. "'They have got me down here on some cock-and-bull idea of analyzing the water supply,' he exclaimed. "'But,' I interrupted, "'did you not hear that cry? A woman in some sort of trouble. Did you not hear it?' "'No, I can't say that I did,' he answered. "'What is the matter with you, Head? You look quite overcome.' "'There was a sound just beyond you, as if a woman was in trouble,' I continued. "'She cried out twice. Are you certain you did not hear her?' "'Quite certain,' he replied. "'But let us listen for a moment. 
If we hear it again, we must, of course, go to the rescue. We both stood still. The huge form of the bacteriologist was between me and the sea. Not a sound broke the stillness. The night was dark, but quite calm. The moon had not yet risen. Only the distant roar of the waves came up to us as we listened. "'You mistook the cry of one of the numerous seabirds about here for that of a woman,' said Lockhart. "'But, be it woman or not, I am afraid we have no time to attend to it any longer. Do you know that the tubes I brought with me have been stolen? But I was too clever for my foes, whoever they are. I suspected mischief, and threw the real culture away while we were crossing the Solent, and substituted plain broth in its stead. Now, what are we to do? This is a very ill-protected place, and I believe there is only one policeman.' "'We must stay quiet until the morning,' I answered, "'and then get help from Newport. With our evidence they have not the ghost of a chance. But, Lockhart, I have something painful to tell you. Your secretary.' "'Valentia Ward? What do you mean? Oh, don't worry about her now. She is safe in London. We shall catch the whole gang by the first light, if we are wary.' We continued to walk on and to talk in low voices. Now and then I observed that Lockhart glanced behind him. It was evident to me that he was in a state of extreme nervous tension. As for me, I could not get that startled and anguished cry out of my ears. I wish now that I had insisted on making a more thorough search when I had first heard it. Suddenly, as we walked, I caught sight of a low shed in a hollow. It was partly surrounded by broken trees. "'Let us make for that old golf-house,' said Lockhart. "'It has been long unoccupied. We shall be safe from any observation there, and can discuss our plans in quiet.' I instantly acquiesced. I had made up my mind to tell Lockhart all about Miss Ward. I thought that I could do so best there. We entered the dark shadow of the trees, and as we did so, I detected a light between the chinks in the walls. I started back. Look, I whispered, the house is not unoccupied. They suspect us already. Let us go back. No time for that now, he answered, barely breathing the words. They were uttered so low. It is true. There is someone there, someone you would like to meet. Before I could move a step or utter a single cry, he had flung me on the grass. His great hands clutched at my throat like a vice, and with all the weight of his huge body he knelt upon my chest and pinned me to the ground. The sudden violence of the attack, the awful conviction that Valentia Ward had indeed warned me of a terrible danger, and that I myself was the duped victim of some hideous plot, completely stunned me and paralyzed resistance. The cruel hands crushed my throat and light swam before my eyes. I felt dimly, without comprehending it, that my last hour had come. The earth seemed to recede away, and I remembered no more. When I returned to consciousness, I was lying on a rough deal table inside the shed. I tried to move, but quickly discovered that I was both gagged and bound. By the dim light I could further see that I was surrounded by four men. They were all masked. Yes, at last I was in the clutch of the Brotherhood. As I watched, too stunned to realize all the awful meaning of the scene in which I found myself, another figure, also masked, slowly entered the room. It came forward and stood over me. My blood froze, for a pair of eyes of terrible power and satanic beauty looked into mine. I had seen them before, and even through the disguise of the mask I knew them. It was the voice of Madame Colucci herself that spoke. The words which now fell upon my ears I had heard from those same lips years ago in Naples. For a traitor to this brotherhood there is but one penalty—death. Then followed clear and concise words of the sentence. They were spoken in Italian, but the last words were English. And neither earth nor sea shall hold his body— but it shall be rent asunder between them. A dead silence followed the uttering of this sentence. Without a word, two of the men lifted me in their arms and carried me out. 
One of them, I felt certain by his size and bulk, must be Lockhart himself. The little procession moved slowly down the path to Compton Bay, just below. I now abandoned all hope. Madame Colucci had won, and I had lost. I had indeed been the victim of the cruelest and most astute foe in the world. But Lockhart, Lockhart, whom I had trusted! His name was well known in the scientific world. All men sang his praises. For was he not by his recent discoveries one of the benefactors of the race? And yet, and yet, my dizzy brain almost turned at the thought. He was in reality one of Madame's own satellites, a member of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. I saw, when too late, the whole deadly trap into which I had walked. The advertisement had been meant to arouse my attention. I had been inveigled down to Freshwater by means which only Madame Colucci could devise. Lockhart was my decoy. Why had I not listened to the words of the brave girl who had truly risked her life for me? That twice-repeated cry must have come from her lips. Without a doubt, in trying to follow me, she had been captured by our deadly enemy. Lockhart himself, in all probability, had done the deed. Had I not met him coming up the path in the direction from which the cry had sounded? What ghastly doom was even now hanging over her head? While my heart beat wildly in my ears, and my brain swam, and my eyes were dizzy, wild thoughts such as the above came and flashed before me. Then there came a dizzying moment when all was blank, and then again the cloud was lifted, and Madame's sentence, as she bent over me, filled the entire horizon. "'Neither earth nor sea shall hold his body, but it shall be rent asunder between them,' she had said. Death awaited me beyond doubt, but I had yet to learn what a lingering death was to be mine. We reached the sands, and I perceived lying at anchor within half a mile of the shore a small steam-yacht. So this was the way Madame and her satellites had come here. Doubtless, when they had sealed the doom of their victims, they would sail away and never return. But where was the girl? She was certainly not in the old golf-house. What had they done with her? I was lifted into a boat. Four men took the oars, and Madame Colucci, still wearing her mask, sat in the stern and steered. Were we going to the yacht? No. The men pulled the boat rapidly along, beneath the white chalk cliffs that towered above us. It was high tide, and the water rose in crested waves against the face of the cliffs. Suddenly we headed sharply round, and the men, shipping their oars, shot the boat beneath an overhanging lip into one of the chalk caverns that abound along the coast. I knew that I was entering my tomb. One of the oarsmen now lit a torch, and I at once saw something floating on the water, which looked like some heavy box of lumber lashed together to form a sort of raft. From the roof of the cave a chain was dangling. At the end of the chain was an iron circlet. Rapidly and without a word the ruffian seized me and placed me standing upright on the raft. They quickly lashed my feet to the heavy block of wood with a strong rope. Another man snapped the iron ring round my neck, and the next instant they had pushed the boat back out of the cave. As they did so, I distinctly heard Lockhart's voice address Madame Colucci. "'The other boat is ready,' he said. "'How long will it float?' asked Madame. "'From two to three hours,' was the reply. "'We shall lash her to the bottom, and—' The boat turned the corner, and I lost the remainder of the sentence. For a moment or two I thought of it, but the awful scene through which I had just passed confused my thoughts, and soon all feeling was concentrated on my own awful position. My neck was fixed to the chain above, my feet to the timber in the sea below. The words of my terrible sentence burst upon me now with all their fiendish meaning. As the tide went down, the whole weight of the raft would gradually drag my body from my head. The horror of such a fearful doom almost benumbed my faculties, and I stood as one already dead, being swayed up and down by the light swell 
that found its way into the cave. The moon rose presently, and its pale beam struck across my dungeon with a weird light. The moon that ruled the tide was to be a witness of her own work that night. I wondered vaguely how long I had to live, but Lockhart must have given me a violent blow when he felled me to the ground, and I was still more or less stunned. Gradually, however, the cool air which blew into the cave revived me, and I was able more thoroughly to realize the position. I now perceived that the chain had at least two feet of slack. Thus the Brotherhood had arranged to prolong my tortures. Was there the most remote possibility of escape? I laughed to myself, a horrible laugh, as the hopelessness of the whole thing rushed over me. And yet there was a mad, passionate desire to make up to Miss Ward for my want of faith in her, which brought sudden fire to my heart, and awoke each intellectual faculty to its fullest. She also was doomed. In what way and how I had but the vaguest idea, but that her death was certain I felt sure. If I could escape myself, I might yet save her. To rescue her now seemed to be the one important thing left to me in the world. I could only manage it by setting myself free. My hands were lashed behind me, but not, I noticed, very tightly. This was, my conquerors knew, unnecessary, for even with them free I could neither, on account of the ring of iron which held my neck, bend down sufficiently far to release my feet, nor drag myself up by the chain, as my feet were secure to the raft, and the effort would be too tremendous. I should soon have to let go. I determined, however, to free my hands if I could, and at last, with great pain and difficulty, worked off the cords that bound my wrists. I then instantly removed the gag from my lips, and felt a momentary sense of freedom. I stretched my hands impotently. Could they not in some way help me? My long scientific training enabled me now to think clearly and consecutively. The knowledge that on my life another in all probability depended spurred each endeavor to the highest point. This much at least was obvious. I could not stop the tide, nor release the iron ring from my neck, nor free my feet from the raft. But there was one thing just possible. Could it by any means be done? I grew cold with excitement as the thought struck me. Could I by any known means connect the raft with the slack of the chain above my head, and so let this connection, instead of my body, take the strain as the tide sank? If I could manage this, it might give time for possible relief to come. Surely it seemed a hopeless task, for I could not reach down my hands to the raft, but still I determined to make the effort, Herculean though it was. It would at any rate be better than the inaction of slowly waiting my doom. Each second the tide was sinking, each second, therefore, would render my task harder, as it would diminish the slack of the chain. I rapidly unbuckled the strong leather belt from my waist, and tried to stoop down sufficiently far to slip the end of the belt beneath the ropes that bound my feet. It was useless. At my utmost stretch I could not reach the ropes. But stay, if only a big swell would come, I might just slip the belt through the rope. I crouched as low as I could, waiting and ready. The precious time sped on. Suddenly I felt the raft dip deeply. I rose up to save my neck, and as the next wave lifted the raft high, I crouched quickly down again, and just managed to slip the strap under the rope and through the buckle before the swell subsided. It was touch and go, but I had done it. To connect the belt to the chain above my head was the next thing to try. I still had the cord that had bound my hands. One end of this I now lashed securely to the slack of the chain but when I had done so I found that it was not quite long enough to reach the belt. I tore my strong silk scarf from my neck and fastened it to the cord, and thus managed at last to bind the cord and belt together. As I looked at the extraordinary rope which I had made for my deliverance, my hope sank within me, for I felt certain that it was far too flimsy. The strain on it would become greater and greater each moment, 
as the weight of the raft was thrown upon it. I seized the chain above my head with my hands, but I knew well that directly the connection gave way I should not be able to bear the strain on my arms for more than a moment, and when I released them I would be instantly strangled. The terrible time dragged on, and the tide sank steadily lower and lower. I saw the silk scarf stretch, and could hear the belt below creaking with the weight at each fall of the swell. In a few seconds I knew it must go, and then all would be over. I closed my eyes. My hour had come. Madame had indeed won, and I had lost. But what was that? What had happened? There was a loud crack, and I was sprawling on the raft. One glance showed me what had taken place. The iron ring in the rock, which would have been amply strong enough to bear the strain of strangling me, had yielded to the combined weight of myself and the raft, which had been half drawn out of the water. The ring had been suddenly torn from the rock. It was indeed a miraculous deliverance, for I did not believe the extempore rope would have held another second. Yes, the worst danger was over, but I was still in an evil plight. I quickly unlashed my feet, and then, with the ring of iron round my neck and the chain attached, sprang onto a projecting ledge of rock at the mouth of the cave. I saw to my joy that the fall of the tide was now on my side, for it had left me a means of regaining the sandy bay. Plunging and stumbling, sometimes neck-deep in water, I at last reached the sand, and fell down, trembling with exhaustion. A dark bank of clouds had crept up and blotted out the moon. I struggled to my feet and looked out to sea. Where was Miss Ward? To go to her rescue now was my first and only duty. I gathered the long chain in my hand, and ran up the winding pathway to the summit of the cliff. My intention was to make my way with all possible speed across the downs to Freshwater. I had gone but two hundred yards on the top of the cliff, when I saw a man coming to meet me. I hurried up to him, and saw to my joy that he was one of the coast guards. I quickly told him my story, pointing as I spoke to my dripping clothes and to the chain about my neck. The man was aghast, and stared at me with absolute amazement and horror. "'Well, sir,' he replied, "'and you think the young lady is in a similar plight?' I told him what I had overheard Madame Colucci and Lockhart say. "'Then they have her in a boat and allowed her to drift with the tide,' said the man. "'The tide is running out, and what wind there is is from the east. I have been a coast guard here for more than twenty years, but I'm blessed if ever I heard such a tale as this before.' "'We must save her,' I said. "'What is the quickest way in which we can get a boat?' If anything is to be done, there is not a moment to lose. The man considered for a moment without speaking. "'There's a gent down here for the summer,' he said. "'His name is Captain Oldham, and there's his yacht lying out yonder in the bay. Maybe he could let her go out again for such a thing as this. It's no use trying with a rowing boat. Captain Oldham has a searchlight on board, too.' "'Is he on the yacht now?' I asked. "'Yes, sir. He's sleeping on board to-night, for he has only just come in from a cruise. The luck is on your side now.' "'The very thing!' I cried. Don't let us lose a single moment. We ran down the road to the bay, and a few moments later my new friend and I were pulling rapidly out to Captain Oldham's yacht. As we approached, my companion hailed the man on watch, and the owner himself appeared as we scrambled up the ladder. In the presence of the Coast Guard I repeated my extraordinary story. The emphasis of my words, and the iron ring round my neck, carried conviction. "'And the girl risked her life for you?' said the old seaman, his eyes almost starting from his head in excitement. "'That she did!' I replied, and I treated her brutally. I refused to believe in her. "'And you have good cause to think they set her adrift in a leaky boat?' "'I fear so, and I want to search these waters without an instant's delay.' "'It shall be done,' he cried. "'My God! I never heard of such devilish cruelty!' He turned and shouted his orders to the astonished engineer and crew. All possible haste was made, and I tried to control my own growing impatience in getting the searchlight ready. 
I saw with satisfaction that it was one of the latest admiralty pattern, such as the steamers use in the Suez Canal. There was a powerful arc-light supplied from an accumulator. The moon had sunk, and it was quite dark now, but with this light not a speck on the sea would escape us within a radius of a mile. I went forward, holding the light in its projecting apparatus, and in about ten minutes we were steaming out to sea. Regulating the apparatus with the hand-gear, I began to play the great light to and fro in front of us. Two of the crew stood beside me sharply on the lookout. We had already passed the needles, but still there was nothing to be seen. Captain Oldham was at the wheel, and he now turned the yacht's head more determinedly out to sea. Mile after mile we went, without success. A hopeless despair began to creep over me. If that girl died, I felt that I could never hold up my head again. Suddenly one of the men beside me sang out, "'Skiff on the port beam, sir! Hard! A starboard!' The engine bell rang to full speed, and in a short time I saw that we were quickly bearing down on what appeared to be an empty boat, aimlessly drifting with its gunwale nearly down to the water-line. What did it mean? Was the girl really in the boat? Were we in time to save her? The yacht stopped, a boat was lowered, and the Coast Guard and I and two of the men pulled for all we were worth towards her. Lying at the bottom of the boat was the motionless form of a woman. Her head was just above water, her eyes were shut, and she looked like one dead. One glance at her face was sufficient to show me who she was. Was I in time to save her? We quickly released the thongs which bound the poor girl and lifted her into our boat. From there we brought her quickly to the yacht. "'Take the boat in tow,' I cried to one of the men. "'We may get some evidence from her that will help us.' This was quickly done, and we were soon steaming back to Freshwater Bay. Alas, however, my worst fears were confirmed. I was too late. All that was possible was done, but Valentia Ward never recovered.' The shock and exposure had killed her. Thus my efforts on her behalf had proved unavailing. She had risked and lost her life for mine. I telegraphed to Defrayer early on the following morning, and he arrived at Freshwater at noon. To him I told my extraordinary and awful adventure. One of our first cares was to examine the boat. We then perceived what Madame's fiendish cruelty really meant. A hole had been made in the bottom, in such a way that the boat would take several hours to sink. Thus Valentia was also to be the victim of a lingering death. The name of the yacht to which the boat belonged had been carefully scraped off the side, thus obliterating any chance of obtaining evidence against Madame. End of chapter 7